0: Hi, everybody! Uh, I always love recording in progress. Uh, it's kind of a cool thing. It kind of puts me on my my toes to get kind of psyched up and ready. Uh, and I'm really psyched up and ready. Uh, by the way, it's February 18th, uh, and it's very windy and cold here in New Jersey. And Dr. Mitchell Gass yes is in Florida, so he can't appreciate that I'm wearing a sweatshirt, but uh, it is cold and we had some pretty bad winds last night, 70 miles an hour, uh, but it's nice and comfortable now. And, and I've been really looking forward to this interview and I'm gonna tell you all why. Uh, it's Dr. Mitchell, yes, the yes method, the end to chronic pain, your chance to take control of your pain and dysfunction. Now, I always like to do things that I can really uh, identify with. It makes me a better journalist and and, uh, a better questioner. Uh, And when Mitchell and I kind of hooked up a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was drawn uh, to his method and to his message uh, only because I am a walking, living example of everything he's going to talk about. And because seven, eight, nine years ago, I was diagnosed um, through an MRI with severe spinal stenosis and herniated discs and the whole thing. And, and um, of course, he's in Florida. I'm here, but I have a, I have a, a great uh, orthopedist here in Central Jersey, Dr. Steve Weintraub, who um, uh, gave me, and Dr. Yash is going to talk about that, you know, gave me uh alternatives uh and uh exercises and stretchings and 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 that's become part of my life. And and uh and, and this is Mr.'s message, uh uh you know, pain-free life. And and I've had that. Uh, uh so uh that's what really resonated and magnetized me. Uh that we wanted to do this segment. So um uh, in 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 kind of a, a an interesting way, I've I've done my Johnny Carson monologue. There's no humor here, but maybe you're laughing. So no I'm laughing. This was a this was a Johnny Carson monologue. There's no Ed McMahon around here, mm-hmm. uh, but um, so anyway, I'm I'm really thrilled and honored, uh, Mitchell Doctor Yes, uh, for you to be here and to talk about this chronic pain stuff. So I guess way um, the best way, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. Um, how about a little bit of a bio and, and and so many interesting elements to your life and how you arrived, where you're at. Um, so take it away. So, Thanks for
1: having me, Calvin. I always appreciate the, the opportunity to talk about this issue of chronic pain because The person who's living in chronic pain doesn't really recognize the extent of how vast the problem is. Everyone kind of attaches chronic pain to their situation. And I hope that someday I can be out of pain. And I hope that someday I could have the life back that I had prior to the pain. What they don't recognize is that in the United States, they're one of 130 million Americans in terms of the world. There's a billion people suffering from chronic pain. So the first thing that I want someone to start to say to themselves, well, if the ability to diagnose and treat pain is so successful, if they've got this down so perfectly, why is it that one out of every three Americans and one out of every seven people in the world are suffering from chronic pain? It, it has to get the person to begin to think about the fact that maybe it's not them. That maybe the problem isn't that they are giving you all the right stuff and that you're just not responding, that maybe the stuff they're giving you is not right. And that's where this first, for people to get out of pain, there has to be a psychological transformation. If you're willing to accept you're going on your fifth, your sixth, your seventh, your tenth year, and you are willing to accept the idea that you've gotten this great diagnosis, that it's highly accurate, that they've identified the tissue creating your symptom, and that all these treatments typically work for other people It just didn't work for you, then you get to stay in this cycle forever. You never are willing to look outside of what's happened, to look outside of the diagnosis you've been given, the types of treatment you've been given, And so the first thing that has to resonate with somebody about the situation is maybe it's not me. Maybe it's not my fault. And one of the dangers with pain, this is a really common thing. Everyone acknowledges that there is an emotional, a a mental, a spiritual attachment to this pain situation. And there will be an attempt to say that your emotional, spiritual, and intellectual connection is to the pain. That is nonsense. That it can possibly be true because if that was true, you would have to show me how a pain receptor, there's a connection from the pain receptor in my skin to the emotional aspect of my brain so that when I pinch you, I want to have a nervous breakdown. That doesn't happen. That's not the way it works if someone stubs their toe if someone has a paper cut if someone hurts their back they don't Im- immediately go into crawling into a fetal position and feeling like they want to kill themselves what makes them feel that way is the time going on and the ability to resolve the pain so it is not pain that causes emotional distress it is the ability the inability to resolve it that connects the emotion that is a big thing to understand because there, if, if you start to connect the pain and the emotional distress, it implies that you can't resolve the pain without resolving the emotional distress. That, that, I've had people who have been in pain for years, decades. I resolve their pain, emotional distress resolved. They actually have a cathartic moment. They become hysterical in the sudden recognition that they will not have to live like that anymore. And now all of a sudden, all the apprehension, frustration, anxiety, uh, hopelessness instantly, instantly disappears to the idea of, oh my God, in the future, I'm going to be able to live pain-free and fully functional. So let's make sure that we understand what we're talking about here. Pain begins, we need to establish what the proper tissue is, In terms of the tissue in distress creating the symptom, which is a part of the feedback system of the body, creating awareness of the distress of that tissue so that a proper intervention can be performed and resolve the distress of the tissue, thereby ending the need of that tissue to elicit the emergency distress signal, which stops the pain. You don't treat pain, you treat tissues. So once we get to this position, now we could start having a legitimate, logical discussion about how is that diagnosis derived? What are the types of treatments performed? And is there a particular tissue that through the existing model of using diagnostic tests can't be found? Which kind of sounds like what could lead to chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Now we could begin that discussion.
0: Wow! Yeah, I, I, I was actually taking notes uh, <laughs> even while I'm taking notes on my notes. Um, right. Uh, what what I found very impressive, you know, doing my research, uh, um, that you you th- this was a second career. Uh, 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 so the question is, how did you really get started? And I know I read somewhere you. You put on forty pounds of muscle, uh, and and you were on the older side uh, when you got your doctorate. Yeah.
1: So here's the thing that, and this gets very very hard for the average person to accept, and I understand that, and I need to work through that. So medical practitioners treat based on their education and training. You're a physical therapist; you get educated and trained to be a physical therapist. You're a physician, an orthopedist; you get educated and trained to be an orthopedist right that's how that works well my mechanism my method has nothing to do with any credential or any um educational background or any type of training my background actually starts as a child who had severe self-esteem issues i was the 99 pound weakling i had sand kicked in my face always very nervous about walking to school became very anxious And so I was a very unhappy kid, and I decided I needed to change my life by strength training. So I reached the point of being 19, and I'm 106 foot, 160 pounds, very thin. And I say, I'm going to change my life. I want to lift weights. So I do what every other person does, and I get Joe Weider magazines and Arnold Schwarzenegger books, and I try to follow the classic premises of, of how weightlifting is done. But in my particular case, my metabolism was very, very fast, and it just wasn't taking. And I tried from 19 to 26 to try to do this. And then suddenly, something came upon me, a thought. And amazingly, I had remembered that I had taken a high school physics course. And physics talks about force vectors and lever arms of how force is created and fulcrums where you create the force from and kinetic energy and potential energy. And I said, you know what? I think I can start applying physics laws to weightlifting because all weightlifting is, is pushing against gravity. The weights are really just ways of applying force against gravity. You're pushing against it. So I decided to use physics laws and I would be in the gym and I'd say, what's the right position for my hand? Well, if the, if, if I'm going to, Um, push up if the weight is trying to push down on me so let's say on a military press you don't want to have your hands outside here and pushing i need to have it so that my forearm is perpendicular to the ground so that my force line is directly opposite and that's how you create the greatest force and i just did this for every exercise and lo and behold over the next four years i put 40 pounds of muscle on i go from 160 pounds to 200 pounds 26 to 30 years old During this period of time, I'm in my first career. I was a project manager in construction in Manhattan, and it just became um, it it just wasn't satisfying. I didn't get any great passion from it. And I end up doing it because I'm getting paid and I decide I want to change careers. And for these four years, I fell in love, in love with weightlifting and and everything about the science of it. And so uh, I, I I take a job in a gym, and the first guy I meet is a guy who's got a degree in exercise physiology, and he tells me about these different types of degrees that you could get where you're helping people, but you don't have to go through the full educational background of becoming a physician. There's physical therapy, occupational therapy, exercise physiology. So I find out about physical therapy, and I'm able to get into the school. Now, one of the other gifts I was given as a child was the ability to logically analyze things. I was taught logical thinking as a child. So for the average person, you're going to learn two plus one is three. Three plus one is four. My father taught me you must know n plus one, which is the theoretical basis of if you apply a single number to that number, what does that number become? And his whole premise was once you understand the theoretical basis of things, anything that comes in front of you, you can analyze it and understand it by understanding the theoretical basis and i And I'm, I'm learning Ohm's law of electricity at eight years old. I mean, this was wild stuff. And I was in love with it. And I thought it was amazing. So by the time I get to physical therapy school, I'm now 30 years old. And they're discussing things. And they're giving you you know the curriculum. And you're following through. But so much of it just didn't make sense. And the big, big change came when I finally was in my last semester and i'm going to do my affiliations. now i'm going to treat somebody so it's no longer being in a classroom now someone's in front of you and they're going to tell you they're in pain and you can you know they'll come with their mri finding and it might say that there's a meniscal tear at the knee and so you're going to basically be told well treat this meniscal tear through whatever mechanisms you're taught and the craziest thing came upon me just because I guess I'm a caring person and I'm a, I was an older person. Uh, I was fascinated by with the body. I just said, so where's your pain? And the person would say, well, my pain's around my kneecap. And I would press and make sure, yep, it's right around the kneecap. And I suddenly came to the realization, wait a second. If a meniscus was to cause pain, that meniscus lies between the thigh bone and the lower leg bone. So there's a point on the side of your knee, which is called the joint line. And that's where they would have pain. And if a meniscus was to cause pain. But the person isn't pointing to their joint line. They're pointing to around their kneecap. And you have to know something about the knee. It's actually comprised of two joints. The joint between the thigh bone and the lower leg bone. And the joint between the kneecap and the thigh bone. And so what I'm starting to recognize is that their pain is at a different joint than where the meniscus lies. By definition, the meniscus couldn't cause that pain no. because the pain is not where it should be. So now I'm in, I'm literally just graduating and I'm starting my first job and all these people are presenting with symptoms that aren't where they should be based on these MRI findings. No. And I reach this moral quandary. Do I do what I'm educated to do? Or do I start this path of trying to understand the symptoms and what tissue is creating it? And because of my age, my passion, and this way of ha- this this freedom I was given of having no fear to go in and try to analyze, I followed that path. And what I found was in more than ninety eight percent of these people's cases, the cause was muscle. And so all I did was treat their muscle. They were pain free, fully functional within a couple of treatments, mm-hmm. and that's where this process began of saying, wait a second, I know the MRI is showing something, but that thing could be independent. And in fact, the cause is a muscular deficit. And if you treat the muscular deficit, you make them pain-free, not changing the idea that that structure does exist. It's just independent of the cause of their pain.
0: So what you've just done now uh, is kind of of, uh, a defined the yes method uh yes exactly that and, and and basically at its core
1: the yash method is a diagnostic model so we're going to try to establish what tissues in distress which interprets the body's presentation of symptoms because those symptoms are coming from the tissue in distress. And there has to be this understanding that specific muscle, specific tissues create specific symptoms and specific symptoms are created by specific tissues. So if I want to know what tissue it is, I can interpret the symptom and what it says, and this is the hard part for people to understand is that you need to negate the diagnostic test finding because that structural variation identified may have existed for years prior And it doesn't elicit a symptom. The only reason why you found it at the time was because maybe a muscle was creating a pain, which led to the getting of the MRI, which found the structural variation. So we don't look at the MRI finding. We look at the symptoms. And if, in fact, it's muscular, which, again, I say it is in more than 98% of cases, we could just do targeted strength training exercises and resolve the person's pain and return them to full function Mm. in weeks at best.
0: Well. It 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 I, like I said in the beginning it, it so resonates with me because uh, I'm a, I'm like a, a, a I'm like a, a a poster boy for you and what um you know I've lived uh and how I've dealt with it and 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 everything I've done has been muscular oriented to strength. Right. I, you know um Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I I, honestly, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had the guidance, uh, I had guidance, uh, but uh, in my own little minute medical background as a pharmacist, um, uh, uh, I'm just a great believer in muscles, and 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 and, and, and even and it even to me translates to this thing up here, because if you uh, exercise and the muscle. Uh, this thing up here uh, is better. You know, I'm even into the telomeres and 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 keeping the, the length of my telomeres, the tips of the chromosomes as long as they can be because you get older, they start to shrink. And, right. And, and, and related to muscular exercise and things. Uh, but I was, I'm just, I'm developing this as I'm talking to you. You know, a side effect of everything you do it's keeping this thing up here even better. Absolutely. But, by the way, uh, and again, I'm I'm a living example of that as as I'm approaching octogenarian status. Yeah, which I really hate saying. <laughs> Oof, uh, I don't even process that in in the least bit because I'm pretty functional. But I believe it's all part, especially the muscular, the exercise, all that. It's it's part of this thing up here. So, but anyway, I, I'm I'm kind of rambling on. Um, I'm fascinated by the number. Uh, 98, 90, uh, of all pain is muscular. I mean, that fascinates me. Um, oh, here's an interesting thing. So I'm saying it's 98%.
1: Listen to this. This is kind of a cool, kind of close number. It's not all the way there, but it'll show you that I'm not the only one saying this. So when, so... Chronic pain begins in the late 1980s, and it's never reduced. The size of people, the number of people suffering has only gone up. The intensity, the time frame, it's all, everything's gotten bad since the ninth, uh, middle 1980s. It's never gotten better. So by the mid-2000s, things are really bad. And medical bodies have suddenly seen this for what it is. It's this epidemic. So they're going to start analyzing it. So in 2007, the American College of Physicians, does a 20-year literature search. They're going to do a position paper on the use of the MRI. And so what they do is they look back at 20 years of case study, thousands and thousands of cases. And what they're looking at are people who have had lower back pain and sought treatment by the medical system. So what they find through this 20-year literature search is that of the people who sought care, for lower back pain, 85% of them, they fall into a category called nonspecific back pain. 85%, okay? Oh. That is the vast majority. Nice. And what, what that means, nonspecific, is that they can't find like a knife sticking out of the person. They can't find a vertebrae sticking out into the back of the skin. There's just nothing apparent about this person having this lower back pain. of people fall into this category. And what they established through looking at this 20 years of case study is that the use of MRI to try to equate the pain to a structural abnormality like a herniated disc or stenosis did absolutely zero to improve outcomes in terms of resolving the pain. Not a little, it literally was zero doing MRIs and I saying, oh, the person has a herniated disc or stenosis or a pinched nerve did zero to improving the outcomes of this group of people. What they determined is that it led to unnecessary treatments, including surgeries and led to unnecessary increased costs. The determination was that the best approach to identifying the cause of this nonspecific pain was to get a thorough history and a physical examination. That, in fact, a thorough history and a physical examination were better at improving outcomes than the use of the MRI. That is the American College of Physicians, the guys who set the guidelines for every doctor in the United States, 2007. What is the mechanism, the diagnostic model for the YAS method? Getting a thorough history and a complete physical evaluation. So that's 85%. That's that's the American College of Physicians who have actually never treated anybody. Never actually done diagnostics. They're just looking. So... For them to say 85%, that's pretty high.
0: Wow. Um, related to that, another thing that uh, I'm a poster boy for, um, I want to get this right. 90% of the people, uh, of people uh, over 60, of which I'm one, uh, 90% of them have herniated discs. Did you? Um, Did you? D-
1: degenerative, degenerative
0: disease. Yes, degenerative,
1: degenerative disease. So, so what happens is, so 1994, they did the first studies on lower back pain, and it shows that 70% of the population who have no back pain whatsoever have bulging and herniated discs. 70%. Listen to that number. That's a big number. Big number. Right? Everyone is being told when they have pain that the cause of their pain is this herniated disc that is identified at the first time they're having pain. And yet... Of the people who don't have pain, 70% have bulging or herniated discs. That has to call into question for the, so the average person. Well, then, how could you say herniated discs cause pain if 70% of the population who don't have pain have that? So they've then done further studies, and they did one based on looking at structural variation in people who don't have pain, and they looked at people at 40 years old. They, they basically took populations in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s 80s and 90s and they started these are people who have no back pain whatsoever and they started to look for structural variations and the one that's the most shocking is and it starts off with a smaller percentage of 30 then gets worse and worse and they see there is a progressive increase in the percent of people who have degenerative disease as you get to the older age populations but by 60 they showed 90% of the population with no back pain has degenerative disc disease. So what I I want the person to say to themselves is, 90% of people who don't have pain have degenerative disc disease. So let's say that you have pain and you get an MRI and it says you have degenerative disc disease. There's got to be two possible solutions to this. Either you have magical degenerative disc disease, which is somehow very, very different from the disease that's found in people without pain, and that's how they can say that that's causing your pain. It's magically different. Or you have pain from a tissue that's adjacent to your spine, eliciting that pain, and that you have the same type of degenerative dis- dis- disease as the people who don't have pain, but it was only identified at the time you're having pain because that's when that other tissue became distressed and went into pain. Which of those two sounds more logical? Clearly, the latter. That's what you have to start accepting, and this is very hard. And this is this is the greatest battle I have. For forty years, the population has been, let's just say, manipulated. Let's just—I coerced is a rather strong term, but let's just say, pushed to believe that just because the structural variation is identified at the time of their pain, it is the cause of their pain. That's called correlative theory. It's simply saying that if I open my front door and the sun rises, I could say opening the front door caused the sun to rise. That's how wacky this concept is. Okay. What you really have to try to be willing to accept, and this is hard because it's 40 years down the road, is that maybe those structural variations are less like cancers, which the mere identification warrants treatment, and more like wrinkles, which clearly are defamation of the original tissue, but the integrity of the tissue is still completely intact. And therefore it simply exists, but doesn't warrant treatment and you'll live and die with it, right? So if we look at a wrinkle, it's defamation, my skin looks different, but what is the purpose of skin? Skin is there to prevent antigens from entering the body. Well, at the wrinkle, is there any greater ability of an antigen to enter the body? No. So there's defamation, but integrity-wise, it's exactly the same. Okay. I know this is so hard for someone to accept this, but I don't really care if you have a herniated disc, stenosis, pinched nerve, uh, arthritis, compression fracture. These are like wrinkles. They are defamations. They have been zis- existing for years, if not decades. And in fact, they never elicit symptom. right? It's only the fact that some other tissue, 98% of the case, it's muscle, has created pain in that area that you then get the MRI and the structural variation was identified at the time of pain. But remember, the same structural variations are being identified in the same percentages of people with or without pain. So what that says is that that structural variation must be independent of pain because it could be found whether you have pain or don't have pain. And that, that's the big jump. That's the hardest step for people to finally, to get out of that, over that hurdle. You're going to have to get over that hurdle to be willing to then say, okay, then maybe my problem is muscular.
0: Isn't this a deep cultural thing to get over
1: let me make this very clear i want to make this extremely clear i will say that chronic pain is a cultural disease so it I, is not a medical disease
0: so i i came up with the right analysis
1: no doubt about it, it oh, and, and, and 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 people if anyone's going to listen to this they're going to really hear something they've never heard before right no one's no one's saying what i'm saying I just want the person to maybe sit in a quiet room, really dig into what I'm saying and see if you could begin to see if it at least makes sense, if it's logical, is it empirical? Am I describing what's real? Not a theoretical press premise, which I'm trying to apply into the real world. Everything I'm saying, these are all facts. I didn't make up any of these studies. Other people have made up of these studies. That position paper from the American College of Physicians, I had nothing to do with that, right? So if you're willing to see that maybe this makes sense, this is your chance. This is your chance to jump out of the typical cycle of simply finding structural variations and treating them versus saying, well, maybe it is muscle. And we'll go on because we're going to start to give people actual physical presentations, which will help them understand that, in fact, it is muscle. But this is the first step is to get beyond the medical the, the mental inhibition that keeps people thinking it's structural because the structure was found at the time of the pain. It's just not true. It's not a logical basis.
0: Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself I came up with that cultural thing. So um, I, I wanna just go off topic for a minute. Sure. Take a deep breath go off topic, maybe put a smile on your face. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Mitchell, uh, I always love to ask this question uh, because it's this is more than pain. Uh, it's about you, the person. Um, uh, so here's the scenario, excluding family or friends, excluding family or friends, uh, somebody living or dead you'd like to spend a day with,
1: Oh, I can answer that easily. It's not even a question. The only person on the planet, any any person I've ever have any sense that I'd want to really get into his brain that I admire that he is a self-made individual. It's George Washington. It's never close. It's always the same for me.
0: So interesting because George Washington's right up there with me. Truly, because um, for a lot of reasons, Uh, I, I remember he wrote a letter when he was president. And it's in South Carolina in front of an edifice. And it kind of blew me away that he was so in tuned to, um, to, to people. Uh, and, 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 the, and, and even the whole founding fathers, how they had the wisdom to put together a system that's endured. Ain't perfect. Yeah. It ain't perfect. But uh, structurally, it was pretty good. Uh, but a great answer. A great answer. Uh, I'll, t- I'll, tell
1: you the, I'll tell you the part about him that really is the thing that I look to as someone to keep me going when things get dark. George Washington's life was a failure up to six weeks prior to the Revolutionary War ending. George Washington was in the French-Indian um, Wars, which came prior. He wanted to be a British soldier. That was his goal. He had no other interest in life. All he ever wanted to be was a British soldier. Well, the couple of campaigns he went to, one of which... He actually was coming back from trying to convince the French that not convinced, but let them know that the English were going to take over fort and inadvertently someone gets shot and they're going to try to get him to, because it was not the right way. It wasn't the gentleman's way of fighting, um, fighting, uh, f- fighting war. And so on his way back, he has to build a fort. It's called Fort Necessity. What did George, George Washington's original job was he was a surveyor. He knew nothing about the military. He's coming into this. He's like 20 something years old. And now he has to build a fort. He didn't know shit about building a fort. So you have to build the fort a certain away from the tree line so that if someone's in the tree line and they shoot that the bullets will fall short, but George Washington doesn't know about anything like this. So he built builds the fort so close to the tree line that when they're going to attack him, The bullets are going right into the fort and there's blood everywhere and it's a massacre and he's forced to have to um, give up and he has to sign something and it destroys him. That was one of the three terrible things that happened. And basically, after that happens, George Washington is told he could never be in the British military. So he hangs up his uniform and now he's going to go on to his next part of his life, which is where he wants to be a planter. Well, George Washington came from a middle class family. He didn't have any money. And so he says, well, as an individual man, the best thing I could do is marry a witch widow. So he finds Martha Curtis, who's the richest widow in Virginia. And so he becomes a planter through that process, not by his own capacity, but by marrying the right person. Then we get to the point after that point that things aren't going so well in his business because he has to trade with England and he's a colonialist and they can't stand that. So he's getting crappy stuff. And actually, it was personal that George Washington wanted to get independence. So now he's gonna become the head of the Continental Army. And if you realize this, he's given the task to make the Continental Army. How many people are in the Continental Army at the time? One, George Washington, there isn't a Continental Army. So now he has to go to Boston and he has to try to make this grow. And that's just a bunch of militia guys. And throughout this whole process, prior to that, everything has failed. Everything has failed. But what did George Washington do? George Washington recognized you learn from your failures. They're not failures. They're actually stepping stones to success. And he actually begins to use Indian warfare techniques in how the um, Continental Army fights war and everything. And it actually eventually towards the very end, he wins and, and then he becomes president and everything going forward is this incredible thing. But everything about George Washington's life tells you that never, ever think of anything as failure. Every time you think something is a failure, take it as an opportunity to gain knowledge from it, to learn from it. I promise you that at some point that will become a stepping stone and someplace in your future when you are successful, you're suddenly going to go look back and say, I guess that wasn't a failure after all. That's how I live my life. Great stuff.
0: Great stuff. So I totally concur. Washington is a hero of mine. Always has been. Um, Interesting. Um, There's another uh, great example that I read. uh, Walking up the stairs, if you have knee pain, and then you sit down, you don't have knee pain. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. So here's a real classic situation. So let's skip the meniscal tail. Let's go to the famous bone on bone concept. So the person who's having pain, let's say around their kneecap, they get the x-ray, it shows this decreased joint space. And so they're being pulled their bone on bone. And so what I want people to understand, and, and I actually just had this yesterday with a person who was told they needed shoulder replacement. So let's break this down to a couple of concepts in, in terms of looking at what the body's telling us, And then see if that matches the diagnosis of bone on bone. So first, how was diagnosis derived? It's either an X-ray or MRI is interpreted by an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. The first question I have for the individual is the, the, you're going to an orthopedist who does surgery for a living. And you're asking, do you need surgery? He is interpreting an image. Now, First off, you could talk about the technological issues associated with that image. Exactly how good is it? How often, how how, um, reproducible is it? Um, One little kind of really crazy, crazy concept relating to that. A study is done and they take one image, one MRI, and they send it to 10 people to interpret it. Not one of them came back with the same, of 10 people showing the same MRI Not one of them came back with the exact same interpretation of that image. Wow. That's pretty scary. That's really scary. So let's we can put that aside, but I just want to make it clear. The interpretation of the image is not exactly a
0: straight sign. Parenthetically, you're you're addressing another thing we wanted to talk about. And you've kind of started that, that an MRI is useless.
1: Correct. And so these are the reasons behind it. This is one of the classic ones, right? So, we know that the interp- the ability of the individual is based again on their experiences and their education, stuff like that. So, that's it. Now, here's a question Let's say that the person is bone on bone, but then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they have a 16th of an inch or a 32nd of an inch or a 64th of an inch of joint space, which is all that's necessary for the joint to function. Can the human eye looking at an image? differentiate bone on bone from let's say a 32nd an inch of joint space the answer is no it's impossible the human eye could never differentiate that well by definition if you're willing to accept that then you have to be saying that the way you're being identified as being bone on bone is baseless because maybe i have a 32nd of an inch maybe i have a 16th of an inch maybe i have a quarter of an inch but the human eye can't differentiate that small difference And that is the only basis by which you're being told you need surgery and that you're bone on bone. So right off the bat, the person has to accept the idea that this mechanism is not valid in terms of giving me an absolute irrefutable indication that I'm bone on bone. Let's go to the YAS method principles. Well, every tissue creates a specific symptom. So does bone on bone create a specific symptom? The answer is yes. So if we understand that there's a joint space that's there in everybody, every movable joint, and the purpose of that joint space is to allow one bone to move on the other bone, to allow the joint to go through range of motion. If we're willing to acknowledge that's the purpose of the joint space. If you're a bone on bone, by definition, it means what? No joint space. If there's no joint space, how does the one bone glide on the other bone? There's no place for it to glide because there's no joint space. So the physical presentation of being bone on bone must be that when the person tries to go through range of motion, there's a major limitation, not from pain, but the mere fact that can't go any further. And if I try to push on it to push it further, it feels like a bone sitting another bone. So thousands of people I've treated over 28 years two two people presented with that. The other thousands of people that I have treated, diagnosed as bone-on-bone, scheduled for surgery, had full range of motion. So they couldn't have been bone-on-bone. I treated them for muscular problems. It was pain-free. So now let's go to one other concept that we want to look at empirically. If you're a bone-on-bone, aren't you always bone-on-bone? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Aren't you always bone-on-bone? Does anyone want to disagree with that concept? The guy's saying you're bone-on-bone. So you're always bone-on-bone right? If you have arthritis, you always have arthritis. If you have pinched nerve, you always have a pinched nerve. It's 24 hours a day, right? So you would expect from a structural variation being called the cause of your pain, if that were to be the cause of the pain, you have to assume that your pain is going to be constant, 24 hours a day, and the intensity level should roughly be the same. But this person who was told they're bone on bone notices that when they go upstairs, walk upstairs, they have writhing pain. But then when they sit down, there's no pain, none whatsoever. So, is the implication from the person saying it's bone on bone that when they're walking up the stairs, they're bone on bone. But then when they sit down, joint space grows? Joint space says, I'm not bone on bone because I don't have pain. So if you recognize that your pain is directly related specifically to weight bearing, and then once you sit down or lay down and you unload the weight bearing, there's no more weight bearing and you don't have pain. You can't tell me it's structural. It's clearly muscular and the muscle is just causing some altered positioning of the joint surfaces, which they're why they're rubbing improperly leading to pain with the weight bearing activity. That that's I don't know how anyone disputes that premise. I don't know how anyone could dispute that. If you're bone on bone, if you have a pinched nerve, if you have arthritis, it's always there. Twenty four hours a day. How could you say that you don't have pain twenty four hours a day? And the average person and I've been doing this twenty eight years never describes constant pain. It's always pain with activity or weight bearing. And then when you sit down and rest, it goes away instantly. Right. So. That sounds like a muscular problem. Oh, that's right. That muscular problem can't show up on the MRI, whether it's muscle tightness, muscle straining, misalignment of joint surface because of weakness or none of that shows up. And the person doing the diagnostics is an educator that trained to identify it. So muscle is never a diagnosis to the medical establishment. That's a problem. Wow.
0: So fascinating. And, and, you know, like I said, I, I've, I've lived all of this.
1: Yeah. So makes... let's look at your case. You were diagnosed. And this, is, this happens to people. You were diagnosed with stenosis. You did exercises which made your pain go away. This is how perverse this gets. The person will believe and will be told that the exercises you did somehow stabilized the spine enough. So that the stenosis was stabilized enough so that it didn't cause your pain anymore. Why can't it just be that it was the muscle eliciting the pain and you stop the muscle from eliciting pain because you got it to function properly. Why does it always have to go back to the structural variation? Why? Because you've been
0: culturally predisposed to believe that for 40 years. And and, and do they, does that, does that leave the door open for further intervention on their port? It's a So it's what if it's muscular? Door, it's <laughs> keeping the door open up here that uh, uh, if not, then uh, something else.
1: So if you have arthritis, a herniated disc, stenosis, uh, compression fracture, any of these creating your pain, who's, who can fix that? Only the medical establishment, right? What if you have a muscular cause? Who can fix that? Only one person, you. Only you can make yourself stronger. So this is about empowerment. This is about understanding which direction do we go. Do we go and just leave ourselves open to these people who hopefully now I've been talking enough and you've heard enough where you're starting to say, you know, the basis by which they're making these diagnoses seems a bit suspect but I'm still going to just leave myself in their hands and whatever they tell me to do, including surgery, I'm going to do, I'm going to fit. Or is it, Oh my God, this could be muscular. And if it's muscle only, I could strengthen myself. So why don't I now empower myself to take control of this and resolve my own pain? You, you that's, that's where this comes. This is, this is a, a door that's going to open in one of two directions. And the question is, which way do you open the door towards
0: the medical establishment or towards yourself? this is big this is huge well it is huge as a matter of fact i'll throw a number out because i I read um it's um it's 700 billion dollars a year the chronic pain thing as opposed to 400 billion cardiology
1: it's 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 incredible so i don't think people understand the magnitude of this chronic pain issue because again you know you, maybe you know a co-worker, maybe you have a family member. You don't understand there's a systemic problem with this. And in terms of the United States, it's $700 billion a year that's going towards the cost of treating chronic pain, where cardiovascular disease, which is what everybody panics about and freaks out about and everyone wants to talk about, that costs $400 billion a year. Wow. Chronic pain is blown by that very wow. quickly. Wow. <laughs>
0: interesting 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 um kind of winding down a little bit here uh you've written some books can you talk about the books you've written you also were on pbs yes so part
1: part of part of my pathway which i believe i've been taken along i did if i want people to understand that I don't want anyone saying, wow, this guy is one cocky guy, man. He just figured that he's going to say this stuff. And he just thinks he's all this. And it has nothing to do. It was never like that. When I graduated physical therapy school, my goal was to have one to two offices, have a wife and kid. And I was going to be the happiest guy in the world. But being who I am from my childhood, from my personal experiences, from my way of analyzing things. I sensed that something was wrong and how it was being done. And I couldn't, I'm a moral, very moral and ethical guy. And I just couldn't just follow through and do what everybody was doing if I saw that it didn't make sense, it was going to work. So I just kept going and going and learning and learning. And it led to me writing books. And, and then that led to a PBS special. So I, uh, the three books I've written are Overpower Pain, The Pain Cure RX, and The Yacht's Method for Pain Free Movement. The last two books are published by Hay House Publishing. They're sold here, Canada, England, Australia, India, and South Africa, which is why I've been contacted internationally to get people, to help people about this. Um, the, the, the connection to, PBS, uh, to, to Hay House actually came from, I treated a woman who had spinal fusion of the cervical spine, who had pain between her shoulder blades. Uh, clearly that wasn't going to work. Her father heard about me. He had her come to me and I treated resolved her pain inside of a week or two. And it turns out that she was the partner of someone who had been on PBS. I was asked to do a PBS test show. I broke every um, record in terms of that. That led me to get a PBS special because we were doing this. This was going to be a national PBS special. That's what led to the connection to Hay House to have that book as part of the gift package. And that's how I got connected to Hay House. Um, And it's just, I've been taken along this path. I'm just, I'm a voyager. I am a conduit um, from a higher power that has given me this understanding. And I just go based on what I believe to be right. And I'll, I'll admit I'm pretty wound up about the ability to be able to do this for people. And so I have a lot of energy. I have a lot of passion and, um, my belief, it's quite simple, is that anyone who's pain has the ethical and moral, ob- has the just innate justification. You have to be able to be taken out of pain. Anyone in pain has the right to live without it, has the right to have a life where they could do what they want, when they want. And if I've been given an ability to help people Achieve that goal, then in my mind, I have to make this available so that anyone who's seeking it can find it, get it, implement it, and have the life they choose. So um, it's a very interesting life. It's been a, a fascinating path. It's 28 years. We're going on almost three decades. Um, but I am as excited, I hate to say, but I'm excited today as I was day one, 28 years ago.
0: You radiate passion. And you talk about journey and spirit and, 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 and I'm the same way. I'm taken down a road. I, right. that's why I, I so identify with you, your passion, uh, you're missing your journey. Uh, um, cause I'm in my way I'm doing what I been guided to do and, and our paths crossed, but there's a, there's a great simpatico. There's a great commonality that we share a purpose journey, uh, um, finally, uh, you, uh, I'm in Jersey. You're in Florida, and we talked about this before we went on air. Uh, I'm going to become a patient, and I'm going to do so. You do stuff by Zoom, and I'm looking here. Um, uh, LiveWithoutPains.com/sessions. Live without pains p-a-i-n-s dot com slash sessions um and that's how uh people can schedule a zoom treatment yeah that that's what's nice is that you don't
1: first off you if you have a question if you're unsure of where you are and certainly if you're questioning whether you should get a surgery or you know some of the other stuff is is pretty scary just as well epidural nerve blocks Um, cortisone shot injections, uh, um, radiofrequency ablation, which is the cauterizing of nerves. I mean, there's some pretty scary stuff that's out there right now. And so if you're in that situation where, again, you're not feeling like you're being really shown that this is the direction you need, it's more just a question of, well, nothing else worked, you could always contact me by email at at drmitchellyass.com. and, and I, I will answer every email that's ever sent to me. It's always going to be that way again, because I think it's my responsibility. If at some point you say, you know what? I've heard this thing about this YAS method. I think I want to go through and you want to set up a session. You don't even have to do that through me. You go to the website, livewithoutpains.com slash sessions. And there's a calendly scheduler there. And you pick the day and time that works for you. And um, you complete the information that's required. You hit go and schedule it, and then you get an email, I get an email, and we know that we're set, and then we go through. The great news is, what do you need for the session? What equipment? You need a resistance band, and you need a chair. Any muscle that I want to strengthen, that is the total extent of the equipment you need. A resistance band and a chair. The sessions are videotaped, so you have that going forward. If there's a question of, don't think that I'm going to leave you high and dry. You're going to do this once and that's going to be the end. And somehow you're going to have to understand how to do these exercises correctly. No, you're going to have a a videotape to help you. I'm going to perform the exercise to show you. Then you're going to do it under my supervision. Right. So we're going to make sure you know what you're doing. And then you'll get that videotape to help follow up. And then there are follow up sessions that we then schedule to make sure that you're proceeding in the correct route until you, in fact, become pain free and fully functional. So that's the great news about this. And as I said, I've treated people in multiple, multiple uh, countries, Taiwan, Switzerland, Portugal, England. I mean, really all over, primarily because there's access to this method that people get by Googling and books and all this other stuff. And so um, I was doing Zoom sessions before there was Zoom. I've been doing teleconferencing for, God, six, seven, eight years by now.
0: Wow. Well, uh, uh, my my last remark is uh, I'm I'm going to be in touch with you. Uh, I'll become a uh, patient with Zoom because uh, I'm always open, uh, and and people want to find out. They can always. I'm I'm very accessible. I sit in this chair 18 hours a day. Maybe that's part of my problem.
1: <laughs> maybe uh, uh, I don't
0: know uh maybe we can talk about that uh sure. but anyway Mitchell you know the AS method uh, it's so fascinating meeting you I, I think is a gift uh and, and I I just thank you for your passion uh and your time uh I think this is really great stuff
1: I would say just to bounce off that concept, I believe that I've been given a gift of this knowledge. And my belief is that my responsibility is to be able to give this gift to others. And then once they have the gift and they take control of their lives, then what I was asked to do is then completed. So I truly do believe this is not an occupation. It's not a job. This is Gift. something that I'm being asked to do and it is in fact a gift of knowledge and I am just so excited for the opportunity to give this gift to those who need it and to finally have an answer and to allow them to be able to reclaim right. their life, which I think everyone's entitled to.
0: That's right. You know, there's an old saying, there's a saying um sometimes I, I forget where it comes from but it made me think of you uh, he who saves a life Saves the world.
1: Yeah. It's very humbling when people talk about this stuff. Because um, I'm I'm, I am human. But um, I've really, really been able to detach myself as a human from the method. And I see the method as this higher power thing. And as a human, as a person, I'm just a conduit. So I don't need any personal gratification from this. I don't need anyone to stroke my ego. It, it has nothing to do with this. Um, i i am just the conduit and, and yes. to be able to give that to people that's the reward that, that's literally where you. it ends and so it, it's you. just a great it's a great life it's i I, I always said it's people i am living a blessed life.
0: that's great great way to end uh I'm inviting you to come back talk more etc uh um and i I sometimes say this sometimes I don't say it but uh, you did make my day.
1: Oh, that's great! I appreciate that, Calvin. Thank really you, Mitchell. Do.
0: To be continued. So absolutely. Um, yes, you be well. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you. I think we. Uh, oh, I have to. I have to press. You know, sometimes I forget. I have to press.